Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, um, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. If you would just pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? You have mercy on your people this morning. And as we come to your word, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see our great and glorious high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to play a little game this morning. It's a word association game. And uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to say a word and I want you to grab on to the first image or concept or person that comes into your mind. I didn't say shout out. I said just think of. In the first service, people were shouting it out. If you want to, that's okay, especially the kids, all right? So the first word in our game is this, monarch. And depending on where in the world you're from, a number of you probably thought of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England. Others may be thought of the ruler of this nation and our ruler, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nahyan. The next word in our game is this. Are you ready? President. Now again, depending on where you're from, some of you were thinking of one person or the other. Some particular idea came into your mind. Here's our third word, okay? This is the most important word in this game this morning. All right? The third word is priest. Priest. Now again, this depends on your background. So if you grew up like me, Roman Catholic, I grew up Roman Catholic, probably the first thing that came into your mind was of a particular man or men who's unmarried, who these guys wear special robes, and then they lead the mass with a particular intonation and chanting, and then they meet individually with persons to hear confession. Uh, that's what you think of if, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, or maybe you're from an Eastern Orthodox background, uh, in which case, I know there are many of you from that background, you probably thought of someone with a big heavy beard and a particular kind of hat, and uh, who uses incense to lead worship. Uh, or maybe you even thought of a pagan priest, you know, a guy without a shirt with a, some kind of a string across his chest and who's chanting mantras in a temple. But for the ancient Hebrews, the word priest would immediately connote a very specific ideal, a very specific person. It would connote for them the Levitical priesthood, the priests of the old covenant, the men whom God had appointed to be the advocates of his people, the representatives of the people under the old covenant system. And they would specifically think, if you said priest, of the high priest, the main representative of the people of God under the old covenant. You see, the story of the Bible, the whole story of the Old Testament is this, is how can sinful people have a relationship with a holy God? And the Bible shows us the, the holy God, our creator, acting, taking the initiative to enable his sinful people to dwell in his presence and find life, to be able to draw near to him. And he instituted an entire system of worship by which his people could approach. You could read the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, which we spent a lot of time in last year. There was a sacrificial system. There was a tabernacle and later a temple, a place of worship. And there were, very central to this system, these men from the tribe of Levi who were called priests. God's people could draw near to him, could approach him through these representatives, through these mediators, these advocates whom God appointed on their behalf, the priests, the Levitical priests, and specifically the high priest. That's how you draw near to God. But most importantly concerning these priests, the most important function that they had in God's plan was that they were a picture. They were meant to be a preview, a pointer, pointing forward, helping us understand that one would come one day 
who would do a work much greater than theirs, who would be a far better high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfills the old covenant priesthood and who exceeds it in a far superior way. Now, you may remember the context of Hebrews we've been looking at for a few months now. The letter to the Hebrews was originally a sermon preached to a congregation of weary Christians, Christians from a Jewish background, former Hebrews, <laughs> Hebrew Christians, and they were facing affliction and persecution for their faith in Christ. And so they were tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and go back to their Jewish way of life. They were tempted to abandon Christ and go back to the Levitical priesthood under the Old Covenant. But here the author tells them, especially in today's chapter, no, Jesus has fulfilled all that. And he shows them, you have in Christ a true and better high priest who not only fulfills God's requirements for a priest, but exceeds those in every way. He is perfect. He is infinitely greater, infinitely better than those priests. And so the author takes them and takes us now. We're, we're starting a new section of Hebrews today, which stretches all the way from chapter 5 through chapter 10. The author takes them into a biblical and theological study concerning the person and work of Christ as a priest. Specifically, this study is what we call in uh, theology, it's called the area of Christology. Why does the author do that? I mean, these people are facing suffering, why not say something practical, right? Well, friends, it's because looking at Jesus, the study of Christology, the study of the person and work of Christ, is the greatest source of comfort in the Christian life. And it is also the greatest source of motivation and encouragement to keep pressing on in all the trials that we face in this life. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, this message is for us. It's for you and I. In today's passage, we continue to be comforted by the tender mercies of our great high priest, the one who is able to sympathize with us, the one who is mighty to save sinners. And as we behold the glory of our great high priest, we grow in our confidence to draw near and to hold on in faith to him. Jesus is the priest that you and I so desperately need. You might remember from last week's verses, verses four to 14 to 16 of chapter 4, in verse 16, the author says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And today he's going to unpack that further. He's saying you draw near with confidence because, because Jesus is our great high priest. He is perfectly qualified and superior in every way to the old covenant priests. As we look at the text, I want to show you the structure a little bit. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. In verses 1 to 4, you'll see that he focuses on the qualifications of the Levitical high priests, the old covenant priests. And he gives us three qualifications of those priests in particular. And then in verses 5 to 10, if you're looking at the text, you see he says, so also Christ. So now he's turning to our Lord Jesus Christ as the high priest, and he shows us how Jesus fulfills those same requirements that he gave us in verses 1 to 4. In fact, he takes us in reverse order, all right? So he shows us 1, 2, 3 in verses 1 to 4. These are the qualifications of the Levitical high priest, and then he shows us how Jesus fulfills those 3, 2, 1, okay? It's a very nice pattern there. So that's how we're going to unpack our text this morning. First, we're going to look at three qualifications of the Levitical high priest. And then we'll see the three ways that our Lord Jesus fulfills and surpasses those requirements. So first, what are the qualifications of the Levitical high priest? Verses 1 to 4, let me read. For every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So the first requirement for the Levitical high priest is that he is an advocate. They were appointed to be advocates. Look at verse 1. These guys were chosen from men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. In the old covenant, the high priest was not just some religious specialist, some expert on all matters of theology, he was expected to know and teach the law, but the primary purpose of his office was to deal with the problem of sin. How can sinful human beings have a relationship? How can they approach a holy God? Well, it's through these priests who act as a representative, as advocates for the people. And if they were going to represent human beings, then he had to be a human being. If they were going to represent men, he had to be a man. He is chosen from among men and appointed to act on behalf of men, a man representing other men. And his role is to be an advocate. Did you notice that? Appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This was their primary purpose. They were the ones who would offer sacrifice. Under the old covenant, if you had sinned and you felt the guilt of your sin, you couldn't just decide, oh, I'm going to offer a sacrifice, let me get the little goat here and kill it in my home and offer a sacrifice to God. No, no, no. This was not permitted. No, you had to go to the place of worship and it is the priest who offers the sacrifice on your behalf. And of course, you had this special day once a year, the Day of Atonement, in which the high priest would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people, the whole nation, even for himself. This was their role to make atonement for sin and to intercede for the people of God. So kind of like a PRO in this country. You have a PRO who represents an organization in the things pertaining to government. Well, here you had high priest who represented the nation in things pertaining to God, before God. So he's an advocate. Second, he's able to sympathize, able to sympathize Right, you see this in verses 2 and 3. It says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Now it says that he is one who can deal gently. What it's saying is that he was measured in his emotions. It describes a certain kind of patience, a restraint. Not quick-tempered or, or getting easily frustrated with sinners. Not losing his temper or flaring up when he sees people going astray. Right? And did you notice the phrase there? It says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Now those are two words that are used to describe the entire spectrum of sinners among the people of God. To say that they were ignorant, if someone is ignorant means they were committing sins in ignorant because they don't know or understand. And then to say that someone is wayward means that they are going astray from God's revealed law, that they were self-deceived and going astray. So, in other words, it's a way of saying all categories of sinners, right, the whole spectrum. And with the whole spectrum, all categories of sinners, these high priests were to deal gently, to show restraint, to not flare up and be impatient. Why? Because, did you notice there, since he himself is beset with weakness. He is reminded that he himself is a sinner, that he himself is covered by sin. Every part of him is touched by sin, that he is a frail, mortal creature, susceptible to sin, just like everybody else. He's no special high and mighty dude. And the process of atonement, of course, reminded him of this constantly and repeatedly. Did you see that? Because of this, verse 3, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Even on the day of atonement, the high priest, even before he offered a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, would have to offer sacrifice for himself, for his own sins. 
reminding him first that he himself is a sinner. The representative of the sinful people is himself sinful. And we have from ancient uh, Jewish uh, manuals, we have the prayer, in fact, that the, the high priest was supposed to pray as they offered sacrifice. All right, let me read this to you. The, the, the priest were to pray, O God, I have committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before thee, I and my house and the children of Aaron, thy holy people. O God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I have committed and transgressed and sinned before thee, I and my house. These men were beset, covered with weakness, morally, physically, spiritually, a finite and fallible human, just like his brothers, just like others. Weak and sinful men representing sinful men. You know, uh, all of you know I have three daughters, ages nine, eight, and six. And sometimes the younger one will do something silly or something childish or not listen. And the older ones get a little impatient with her. And so they will offer a quick rebuke or try to correct her, or they begin to flare up and, and get a little angry. And one of the things I always uh, tell my older daughters, and they can attest this to you, is, uh, hey, Eliana Petra, you know, do you know how you used to behave when you were six years old? <laughs> do you know the things that you used to do when you were her age? Yeah, it, it wasn't that great. It, it was all of this and a little bit more even. Uh, so maybe you can be a little patient and kind with your sister and show some grace. What is it that makes a person harsh and judgmental towards others? Well, it's a failure to recognize that you yourself are sinful and weak. It's when you fail to recognize your own sin. Not so with the high priests. They had to be acutely aware of their own sinfulness and therefore able to deal gently with sinners. So they were advocates who were able to sympathize. And then we see the third requirement, verse 4. They were appointed. The high priest had to be appointed. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. We see this even in the first verse of the chapter. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. They were appointed. Not anyone could become high priest. You couldn't wake up one morning and, and make a decision and you know, someone asks you, so what's your career aspiration? Well, I want to be the high priest. No, not allowed. This was the most holy office in Israel and the person in this office was appointed by God himself. The Lord takes the initiative. He's the one who appoints, who calls, who chooses. So this was not a career, but rather a calling. And of course, recognizing that he was appointed by God keeps him humble, free from ego and hubris and arrogance, no place for those things. No, this is God's calling upon your life. God has appointed you to this task. And every time in the Old Testament we see someone dare to take on priestly responsibilities on their own initiative without being appointed by God, there was judgment. So maybe you know the story of Saul in the Old Testament who took it upon himself in a hasty manner to offer sacrifice without waiting right before a battle. And God's judgment came upon him. That was the beginning of the end for King Saul. Or maybe you remember King Uzziah, who uh, was a king in the Old Testament, who again took it upon himself to perform priestly duties. And as soon as he did so, God struck him with leprosy. No, this was a special office. They were appointed by God, to be advocates who are able to sympathize with the people and represent the people before God. And as you see all that, you might say, wow, that's a great office. And it was. Somebody appointed by God himself to be the people's advocate, to represent man before God, that's a significant honor. And very significant. This long line of priests had continued for many years, for over a thousand years in Israel. And, and, and you could ask the question, could, is there anything or anyone who could be better, who could come close to this? Of course, the people uh, who were receiving this letter, the Hebrews, they obviously faced this question. I mean, we're going back, we want to go back to the Levitical priests. What could be better than that? God himself appointed it. 
Is there anyone who could come close? And the author's answer is, yes, absolutely. There is one who not only fulfills these requirements, but infinitely surpasses them. And that's where the second half of our text goes this morning. To show us the qualifications and role of our perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we'll see in verses 5 to 10. And to understand this section, and, and in fact, to properly understand uh, the whole of Hebrews chapters 5 to 10, you have to understand uh, a way of reading the Bible that in theology uh, we call typology, right? Typology. Typology is a way of interpreting the scripture and understanding how God has communicated to us. Uh, to speak of typology is to say that God has acted in history, in the writing of the story of history, in the Old Testament, in His revelation. God has acted in such a way so as to shape particular events, particular institutions, and particular persons uh, to be pictures to be patterns that look forward, that point forward to someone who will come, who will fulfill those patterns, who will be similar to them, and yet be greater than them. All of these events, institutions, all of them anticipate and point forward to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what typology is. It's a way of reading the Bible that way. And so we, we see this over and over again. So if you think of the Exodus, God's great act of deliverance in the book of Exodus. That whole event is God acting with a mighty hand and outstretched arm to deliver His people from bondage and slavery, to rescue them and bring them to Himself. Well, that whole incident, again, was just meant to be a picture, a preview, pointing forward to the day when God would act in and through our Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish a much greater rescue, to rescue His people from slavery to Satan, sin, and death. We continue to see this with the, with the whole sacrificial system, that sacrifices were instituted by God in the Old Testament to teach us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And all of these imperfect sacrifices kept being offered to point forward to, they were all types pointing forward to, the day that God would provide a perfect sacrifice our Lord Jesus Christ crucified, shedding His blood to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. Even people in the Old Testament were types. So you think of King David and you think of the whole story of David and Goliath and, and you know, David, the sling and one stone topples uh, mighty Goliath and you think, oh, that's how I face my giants. No, that's not what it's about. It's pointing forward to the one who would come from the line of David, who is greater than David, who would destroy Satan and accomplish victory for the people of God. That's typology. These are all types and patterns pointing forward to the fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the high priests were. That's what the whole priesthood was. That's how the author wants us to understand it. They point forward. They give us certain uh, categories to understand who Jesus is and what He has done, and He fulfills them and does so in an even greater way. The type will have many similarities to the fulfillment, you see, but the fulfillment will also have certain dissimilarities, will be far, far greater than any of the types, right? You've you got to think of it like a, a picture and the reality, right? So you want to go on vacation, you, you look at a picture, a postcard of, of, nobody uses postcards these days. You Google the, the vacation location destination and you begin looking at images of it on Google and, and you're dreaming of, oh, how nice this place is going to be. But then you finally get there to the place and it's so much better. Yes, it's everything that you saw in the pictures, but far, far greater. You get the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes and you're immersed in this. And it's similar, but so much better. The, the, the letter of the Hebrews itself uses the language of shadow and reality. You look at a shadow and, and yeah, you can see some resemblance uh, to the thing that is casting the shadow, right? There, there are similarities, but then you see the reality and it's far greater. That's how the priests point us to Jesus. And so we see in the second half of this passage how Jesus fulfills the type of the priesthood, right? So we're going to look at three ways 
that Jesus fulfills the office of the high priest in verses 5 to 10. And like I said, uh, he shows us these three uh, things in, in reverse order, right? That we saw them in verses 1 to 4. So let me read verses 5 to 10. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So three ways that Jesus fulfills the office of the high priest. First, I told you it's a reverse order. First is that he was appointed. Jesus was appointed to be our high priest, verses 5 and 6. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. Our humble Lord Jesus did not exalt himself to be our high priest. He is humble of heart and lowly. No, he was divinely appointed to this task. This was God's appointment. This was God's plan for our redemption. He appointed his son to be our high priest. And did you notice the citations that the author gives us as proof of this? Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 2 verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then Psalm 110 and verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the author brings together these two very important texts that we heard read earlier today. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. To show us that the one who is the priest is also the son. It's no ordinary one becoming our priest. No, this is God's own son from all eternity. God's own king whom he has appointed to be king and lord. This one has been appointed to be our priest. And it is because he is the son of God that he is a greater high priest, infinitely greater than any other priest in the old covenant. The son of God himself is our high priest. And of course you might be looking at the way the author is Transitioning here in this sermon, the first four chapters of Hebrews, as we looked at for several weeks until last week, focused on what? On Jesus as the Son. Do you remember this? He is the superior Son. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. The Son is better than angels. It focuses on Jesus as Son. And now, from chapter 4, verse 14 onwards, He's transitioning into this new section, where from chapters 5 to the end of chapter 10, He's going to be focusing our attention on Jesus as priest. The Son who is the priest. And He tells us He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the moment you've all been waiting for, right? M many of you were reading Hebrews, maybe some of you even eager, read ahead of time, read all the way to chapter 7, and it's like, all my life, I've been waiting to understand what is this Melchizedek guy, and what does it mean that Jesus is like the order of Melchizedek, and all of that. So if that's you, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, we're not going to talk about him today. Because the author of Hebrews... The, the author of Hebrews doesn't talk about him today. He just mentions him, all right? But he talks about him later, and we will talk about Melchizedek later, I promise. But not today. You just have to be content. Wait with anticipation for the fulfillment, all right? God has appointed Jesus to be our advocate, our priest. And did you notice what he says? You are a priest forever. He is our perfect high priest forever. So long as the Son of God lives forever, He is our high priest forever, through whom we can always draw near to God. In the new heavens and the new earth, in glory, when we enter God's heavenly kingdom, Jesus will still be our high priest. He will be the one through whom we can freely approach God. This is not a temporary appointment. It is an eternal appointment. And so we ask the question, why is it that Christ can act as our representative before God and be our substitute and the answer is because God appointed him to be so. Or you may ask, why does God listen to his prayers for us? His prayers for you and me. 
Why does God accept his prayers on our behalf? Why does God accept his sacrifice for sinners like us? Because God himself has appointed Christ to pray for us as our high priest and to offer a sacrifice for his people. God has appointed him to be our advocate. And there's a twofold sense to this appointment that you must grasp, right? You, you see what he says, uh, the, the Lord said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, these are declarations that God makes when Jesus rose from the dead victorious and ascended into heaven. God crowns him as king forever and says, you are my son Today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So these are declarations by God on the completion of Jesus' mission. Declaring that it is done. He's fulfilled his mission. He is the son and king and priest forever. But on the other hand, that's just an echo and a reflection of what God says eternally. And the author here gives us a, a little bit of a, allows us to eavesdrop on what the Trinity says within themselves, within himself. That in eternity past, God the Father and God the Son eternally existed as Father and Son. And in, from eternity, God the Son is the eternally begotten Son of God. There never was a time when he was created or born or anything like that. He has always existed as the Son of the Father. And in eternity, before time began, before anything else was created, God appointed him to be our high priest. Before the foundation of the world, between the persons of the Trinity, there has been this arrangement that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son himself, would come and act as the mediator for the people of God. That God the Father, before the foundation of the world, set his love upon a people and gave those people to his Son. And the Son takes upon himself from the Father the mission to be sent to be the high priest to redeem these people from sin and death. Think about this, dear friends. This means that before God said, let there be light, before God laid the foundations of the earth, before Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, you were in the heart of God and in the plans of God and you were laid upon the heart of our great high priest, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that not encourage you to draw near and take hold of him? Draw near and hold on to this Christ who had you in his heart before the world began. Not only has he held us in his heart from before time began, but our great high priest holds us in his heart even now. And he did so throughout his life. He was appointed by God as one who is able to sympathize. Verses 7 and 8, that's the second requirement here. Jesus is able to sympathize. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The author is telling us here what he told us already last week. He said, our high priest, in chapter 4, verse 15, is able to sympathize, for he has been tempted like us, in every way, yet without sin. And so now he's showing us, furthermore, how Jesus is able to sympathize. And he shows us three ways Jesus is able to sympathize, that Jesus sympathizes with us. Jesus sympathizes with us in our struggles. Jesus sympathizes with us in submission to the will of God. And he sympathizes with us in suffering. In suffering. First, in our struggles. Did you notice what it says there? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. That's a way of telling us that Jesus was fully human, like you and me. So Jesus, our high priest, is God the Son from all eternity. He is fully divine, fully God. And of course, as God in his divine nature, he is incapable of suffering, cannot be acted upon. No, he is the creator, sovereign Lord. There's a distinction between creator and creature. He is divine. And yet, 
for us and our salvation, Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, took on her human nature, becoming flesh, fully man, fully like us in every way, yet without sin. You see, all of us come into this world with a sinful nature. We're born sinful. That's our nature. Jesus was born fully human, but without sin. Not sinful in any way, but yet completely and fully human. And so that means, dear friends, that he has faced all of the hardship that we face, all of the trials and testing that we face as being a human being. He grew tired. There were times when he was weak and exhausted. He was susceptible to pain. He could feel pain, felt all the hardship of life in this world. He went through emotional turmoil and the struggles that you and I go through emotionally. He was tested by the hardships of this life. And look at what it says. It tells us he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. With loud cries and tears. Have you ever prayed to God with loud cries and tears? I know what that's like. Been there. You know, cried out to God. Oh Lord, this struggle, this suffering that I'm going through. Lord, would you please provide some relief? Have you cried out to God like that? I know many of you have cried out to God, Lord, please, please help me. Help me through this deep pain and loss. Lord, please be my defense against this great injustice that I've been facing. Lord, please heal me from this serious illness that threatens my life. Oh Lord, please grant relief from this sorrow that just won't go away. If you, you prayed like that with loud cries and tears to God. And friends, what the author wants us to know is that Jesus knows that. He's been there. He understands that. He prayed earnestly with deep emotion, with loud cries, cries and tears, praying in the garden as he prepared to face death and to be punished under the wrath of God. For the sins of his people, he cried out and prayed in the garden with loud cries and tears, even sweating blood. He cried out and prayed on the cross as he was hanging naked and ashamed in anguish, beaten, battered. As he was suffocating to death with every breath, crying out to God and entrusting himself to God for our sins. And, and the author here is describing what was true of our Lord all through his life. All through his life. His life was a life of crying out to God in prayer, fervently. And he still prays fervently. Our high priest has not stopped praying. He still prays fervently, unfailingly, passionately for you and me who trust him. You know, one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life, dear friends, is the trial of having to keep on trusting God when you have cried out to Him and sought after Him and prayed and been faithful to Him and have cried out for mercy and relief and you don't get the answer that you want. And you need to keep on submitting to His will in faith. It's one of the greatest trials and challenges in the Christian life. And you know what? Jesus understands that better than any of us ever could. He has been there. Right? That's the second way he sympathizes with us. In submission to the will of God. Right? You think about what it says. It says, he cried out with loud cries and tears to, the, to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus cried out in the garden, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But he submitted to the Father's will, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And the cup of the wrath of God was poured out upon him and he absorbed it to the full. He died. Jesus died. 
He drank the cup. So in one sense, his prayer was not answered immediately. He submitted himself to God's will. But the text tells us his prayer was heard because of his reverence. He was delivered from death because God raised him from the dead in glory, victorious. And so sometimes our prayers are not answered as we think and we ought to submit to God's will. But God answers them in a way that we cannot imagine. And so we see here that Jesus is able to sympathize in those weaknesses because of his submission to the will of God in his own life. What was the context for his submission to God's will? It was suffering. Our Lord was familiar with suffering. You know, one of my favorite preachers uh, is a pastor named Ligon Duncan, and uh, he points this out. He says, as you read the New Testament accounts of the life of Christ, as you read the four Gospels, uh, you will see that all the emotions of human life, the entire spectrum of human emotion is applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus experienced all human emotions just as we do. But except for these two, you don't see lightheartedness and humor. You see the entire spectrum of human emotions, but not humor and lightheartedness. Now, that's not to say that the Lord, our Lord Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. But uh, what Ligon Duncan says is this, we must remember that Jesus was a man from his very earliest years who was acquainted with grief and sorrow. He was a man who was never very far away from the shadow of the cross over his life. And so the emotions that are described of Christ in the New Testament, though they are tender and fully human, are predominantly emotions that we experience when we are in the greatest trials and temptations of our life. That's why he's able to sympathize. He has suffered more than any of us ever will. Do you see what it says in verse 8? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was God's son right from the very beginning. Yet he had to learn obedience through suffering. Now that's not to say that Jesus was previously disobedient. And so now he had to learn how to obey. No, it means that he was constantly facing new trials, new tests, circumstances, practical, concrete circumstances that tested his obedience. And at every turn he overcame. At every turn, in every trial, in practical circumstances, he learned to entrust himself to the will of God and obey. In every situation that he encountered, every suffering, as he was challenged, he overcame in obedience unfailingly. Now, I've been a Christian now for 17 years, and I had walked through various trials uh, in my Christian life, uh, various sorrows and a lot of unexpected things that really tested my faith and obedience to the Lord. Uh, but in December 2020, many of you know, uh, I got a call all of a sudden that my dad, whom I dearly loved, was diagnosed with cancer. And I flew to India to be with him. And within 10 days, he was gone. Uh, and the Lord took him. And I watched uh, his life slip away over those 10 days. And in those 10 days, uh, my faith was tested in ways that had never been tested before. And I had to learn to submit myself to God's will and to obey God in a kind of suffering that I hadn't experienced before. I had to learn obedience in suffering. That's what it's talking about with Jesus, is that he was constantly thrown into situations where he was tested. And yet, unlike us, where we fail and struggle and fall into sin and doubt God's goodness, Jesus obeyed. He learned obedience through what he suffered so that he could be our perfect high priest and be able to sympathize with you and me. As he encountered every situation, he obeyed. And so in one sense, Jesus is a profound example for us. If he learned obedience through suffering, so can we. But on the other hand, more importantly, what the author wants us to know is that if Jesus has walked through suffering and obeyed, then he will walk through suffering with you and me. 
that He will be there for you, that He is there with us through our suffering, through it all, and will carry us till the end. And friends, when we have such a Savior who so perfectly understands every sorrow, who so perfectly is acquainted with all our griefs and struggles, who has perfectly passed every test without failing, shall we not draw near to Him for the help that we need? Our perfect high priest is able to sympathize with us. Think of verse 2. He deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. He deals gently with us in our struggles and our sins. And so I don't know what sin you've been struggling with. I don't know what guilt is laying hold of your conscience. I don't know what it is that you're suffering through. But no matter how far you've fallen, no matter how badly you failed, no matter how weighed down you are, Jesus deals gently. So are you going through great suffering this morning? Draw near with confidence to our high priest. He deals gently with sufferers. Do you feel like you've fallen and failed and you feel unworthy to draw near? Come to him. Jesus deals gently with sinners. Struggling with sin and temptation. Friend, don't let anything hold you back from this merciful high priest. Draw near to the high priest who sympathizes with the ignorant and wayward. Who deals gently with us with every category of sinner. Who is able and willing to sympathize with you and to help you even in your darkest hour of need. He perfectly fulfilled all that is necessary to be our Savior, our Redeemer, our Advocate, our High Priest. So we've seen that Jesus fulfills the office of the High Priest, first because He was appointed by God, second because He is able to sympathize in struggles, in submission to the will of God, and in suffering. And third, we see Jesus fulfills the office of high priest because he is our advocate. He can represent us because he is fully like us, and he is perfect, verses 9 and 10. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Being made perfect, what does that mean? I thought Jesus was the perfect son of God. So how could he be made perfect? Again, you must remember that this is not something new that the author has introduced here. He's already talked about this back in chapter 2. You might remember we looked at chapter 2 verse 10 where it said, God was pleased to make the founder, founder of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Now that does not mean that Jesus was in some way ever imperfect or sinful or lacking in any way. No, what it means is that by his obedience throughout his life, throughout his suffering, by his perfect obedience, as he lived as the incarnate son of God, as God the son made flesh, he completed his mission. He completed the life of perfect obedience to God, which was necessary for our salvation. He lived in a way that no one else had ever lived. He lived the life that no high priest had ever lived. Those high priests could not save people from sin because they themselves were sinners in need of salvation. No, we needed to be saved by the perfect work of another who would be perfect in every way and would accomplish our salvation. And what he's saying is, Jesus has done that. His entire life was one of obedience in all suffering and he completed his mission perfectly on the cross. And he rose again from the dead, glorious and victorious, ascended into heaven as the completely perfect high priest saying, it is done. And now he is the source of salvation for all who come to him. Jesus has bridged the gap between us and God, he has given us access so that we can approach God in confidence. What is the source of our salvation? That's a key question for all of us, for all human beings. You see, God our creator is holy and just and righteous. And we are sinners, rebels, ignorant, wayward. We've gone astray. We deserve God's just and righteous judgment and punishment for our sins. 
How can we be saved from the penalty of our sin? Who will save us? How can we be rescued from this? What is the source of our salvation? And the answer that Hebrews 5 gives us is, Christ is. Christ is our salvation. There is salvation in no one else. This high priest is the source of eternal salvation. The Son of God obeyed the will of God and suffered under the wrath of God to save us and bring us into the family of God. And he is the source of eternal salvation to whom? Do you see what it says? To all who obey him. To all who obey him. He calls us to faith and obedience. And so the most important question for us this morning, for you, dear friend, is this. Is Jesus your high priest? Have you trusted him as your advocate? As the one who is appointed by God to save you from your sins? And what it means to obey him in the context means that we come to him. We hold on to him. That we forsake all of the things that are holding us back and that we run into the arms of our merciful Savior. We must obey the one who obeyed on our behalf. And it will involve some suffering in this life, yes. We must suffer with the one who suffered for us. But through our suffering, he will lead us into glory. He deals gently with the entire spectrum of sinners. If we rebel against him and turn away from him, then we will face judgment and wrath. But if we come to him and earnestly draw near to him with a true heart, dear friend, he will never, he will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our great high priest, so great a savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we draw near to him in faith and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.